World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. The long-run effects of brain injuries are only just becoming recognized. One striking association is with crime. Our correspondent examines how common brain trauma is among those in the criminal justice system and how commonly that's been overlooked. And every time a new social media platform starts to get traction, it's seized upon in places where speech is restricted. So it goes with a trendy audio app called Clubhouse, which has become wildly popular far from its Silicon Valley home. First up, though. Across China, stores of the Swedish fast fashion brand H&M are shutting down. Their leases rescinded, their presence online scrubbed away. The company is the latest to get caught in tensions surrounding China's treatment of its Muslim minority Uyghur population. Last week, a number of Western governments imposed sanctions on Chinese officials for the alleged abuses in the Xinjiang province. This package includes four individuals and one entity from China who have had an active role in the design and implementation of the Chinese policies in Xinjiang. In retaliation, China imposed sanctions on Western individuals, and nationalists encouraged Chinese consumers to boycott companies that are trying to remove Xinjiang cotton from their supply chains. Xu Guishun, a government spokesman, said yesterday that as a result, H&M could no longer make money in China. To get involved in the sanctions, he said, is like lifting a stone to drop it on one's own feet. The dynamic here, though, is about far more than the struggles of a few big-name fashion brands. As attitudes harden on matters of politics and human rights, all kinds of firms may well be caught in the middle. Consumer boycotts of foreign brands are so common in China that there really is a playbook for companies to follow if they find themselves caught up in a storm like this. Simon Rabinovich is our Asia economics editor and is based in Shanghai. They start often with an apology, maybe a retraction of of whatever caused the offense. They then stay quiet for weeks waiting for the storm to blow over. When it does, they reemerge, and it's such a big, giant market with so much promise for them um, that they're all willing to be patient to, to ride out the storm. But this cycle of consumer boycott and then foreign brands trying to deal with it has, has blown up in a big way in the past week. That is in the sense of what's happened with H&M. It's much more than just H&M, though. It's you know, virtually every prominent 
Western clothing brand uh, and sportswear retailer has found itself facing calls for boycotts. That includes, you know, Nike, Adidas, you know, you even had Tencent, the big Chinese tech giant, pulling Burberry clothes um, from one of its video games. So it, it's, it's a who's who of companies uh, that finds uh, itself in trouble. And so how has it come to this? Why is it so acute now? Well, these companies months ago posted statements saying that their products would not contain cotton from Xinjiang, you know, the predominantly Muslim region in China's northwest, where there's credible allegations that forced labor is involved in the production of the cotton. The trigger now for the boycotts is that on March the 22nd, there was a coordinated announcement of sanctions on Chinese officials for the abuses in Xinjiang made by the governments of America, the European Union, Britain, uh, and Canada. China responded with tit-for-tat sanctions, and then a couple of days after these sanctions that were targeting, you know, primarily officials from those, those different countries, you then had this consumer boycott that emerged. And we've spoken on the show before about how cotton from Xinjiang has been a sort of a focal point for, for Western brands, but also that we've spoken about the difficulty of tracing it through supply chains. I mean, how does that look now? Are companies like H&M getting better at, at, at making sure they don't have Xinjiang cotton in their products? Well, I think there's two basic difficulties for, for the company. So one is that it is very difficult to, to fully, 100% with guarantees, say that you don't have Xinjiang cotton anywhere in your supply chain. China produces about 20% of the world's cotton. 90% of that comes from Xinjiang. Some of that is harvested mechanically. Much of that is produced with manual labor. So theoretically, you might say that you could you could kind of isolate the manual labor produced Xinjiang cotton, but China does not allow transparent, detailed audits of its cotton production industry. It denies the allegations that there is any kind of forced labor problem in Xinjiang to begin with. And you then have the problem that, you know, beyond cotton, China is the world's biggest producer of textiles. And so a lot of cotton from other countries, including America, ends up in the Chinese market, gets mixed together with Chinese cotton. So so disentangling that is virtually impossible. The second problem is a political one, which is that if these companies come out and say, we are going to do whatever we can to strip Xinjiang cotton out of our supply chain, they will encounter what they've been encountering in the past week, which is outrage from China, saying that there's nothing wrong with Xinjiang cotton to begin with. If you want to sell into the Chinese market, you better not criticize China. The phrase that was used by a Chinese foreign ministry spokeswoman was, if you want to eat Chinese food, you best not be smashing the Chinese dishes. So where does that leave companies then who, who have obligations in, in both directions? What's the playbook in this scenario? Well, it's not entirely clear what the playbook is because, you know, unlike the previous controversies where, you know, relatively more discreet, you know, for example, American Airlines that had listed Taiwan as a country, well, they could reclassify it, you know, as Taipei the city, not Taiwan as a country. This time around, it's much more complicated because China is, is clearly unyielding in what it believes it's doing in Xinjiang. And then on the other side, you have foreign governments that are clear that what's going on there, you know, is a gross human rights violation. Um, and so, you know, these are two pretty extreme positions for, for companies to be stretched between. For some of them, they're effectively trying to bury their head in the sands, hoping that things will, will somehow blow over. But for a lot of other companies, they're concerned that that's not enough. You know, they themselves might be outraged by the human rights abuses in Xinjiang. 
Xinjiang. And they know as well that, you know, ultimately they've got to comply with, with the laws and the markets outside of China that they're selling their products into, most specifically in America, where they have banned cotton and all products containing cotton from Xinjiang. Plus, of course, they're aware that, you know, cotton might only be the starting point. This could well spread very quickly into being a much bigger issue. You say these tensions might spread to other countries, but I mean, I suppose the point is that these tensions might spread to many other companies. Yeah, indeed. Now before Congress, there's another law, the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act, effectively operate on the presumption that all goods being made in Xinjiang may involve forced labor. So it'll be up to companies to prove that any good that's sourced from Xinjiang or that contains goods sourced from Xinjiang does not contain forced labor. Well, that quickly spirals into a whole series of other industries. You know, Xinjiang uh, is the world's dominant producer of polysilicon, which is a key ingredient in solar panels. It's a giant producer of wind turbines. It's even a giant miner of, of Bitcoin. So you can quickly connect the dots and see that, you know, what's begun with cotton spreads into a whole series of other sectors. But the, the kind of working hypothesis for a lot of, uh, of Western firms is that the Chinese market is just too attractive to simply abandon, even if it looks this uncertain. That's right. For foreign companies, they feel that they're really between a rock and a hard place. They know that they can't get China to change, or they believe they can't get China to change what it's doing in Xinjiang. And they also see that American, the American government and the other foreign governments uh, are becoming much more aggressive and much more proactive in addressing the human rights violations there. There is then a big question about what is going to be the end game of this. You know, what American and other foreign companies would like to see is the governments of China and America agreeing that there's certain specific areas that will effectively be walled off, you know, where there will not be cross-border flow of, of trade, and then other areas will be open to them. But as we've seen, you know, relations between America and China right now are, are tetchy, to, to put it, you know, politely. Um, and so the idea that they'll be able to come to that kind of agreement seems vanishingly small, at least at the moment. There's a very real risk that once you b- begin to implement these measures, they start to spiral into new and much more expansive directions. Thanks very much for joining us, Simon. My pleasure, Jason. Thank you. Keep following the threads of this story and many more that are shaping politics and markets by taking out a subscription to The Economist. Get a great introductory deal at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. With the highest number of young STEM graduates per capita in the EU... Ireland has the people and skills your company needs to succeed here. IDA Ireland, the National Investment Development Agency, can help you find and nurture the people you need to internationalise and thrive. Our talent is just one of the extraordinary benefits Ireland has to offer. Learn more at idaireland.com. Invest in Extraordinary. My name's Michael, I have a brain injury. When I run across the road, my sister chased me, because I was only about seven or eight, I slipped over, and that's when the car got me. A big scar across my neck, from the back of my neck to the front of my neck. I had to have a special helmet on for like a few months, and then I had a walking stick, I couldn't walk properly. Traumatic brain injuries affect around one in ten people in rich countries. Those who've experienced them are more likely to suffer mental health problems and loneliness. They're more likely to struggle with addiction or to be homeless. 
they're also more likely to commit crime. Michael, who grew up in Victoria, Australia, was one of seven siblings, and the only one of them ever to get in any serious trouble. I was in and out of jail from petty crimes to stealing cars to snatching motorbikes, and I started using drugs, marijuana at a young age. I was a late heroin user at the age of 28. That was when my crimes got worse and bigger and sentences got longer. I went from being just a petty thief to an armed robber. Boys' homes and, and jail, I've done probably about 22 years all up, in and out. The best place to look to see how brain injury impacts crime is by looking at people in prison. Georgia Banjo writes for The Economist. So to give you a bit of context, brain injuries affect about 8.5% of the general population. But when you look in prisons, the rates are far higher. So one study from the University of Denver suggests that anywhere between 50 to 80% of prisoners have brain injuries. And that also includes those who are on parole. And this figure is fairly high, but we also see this repeated in many, many other studies. So that average reported rate um, in studies done across Europe, America and Australia is around about 46%. What actually happens with the brain that, that is somehow linked to criminal behaviour? So when most people think about traumatic brain injuries, they often think about a high-impact blow in sports. So American football, boxing, rugby. But actually, the most common types of brain injuries usually involve falls, they involve road traffic accidents or fights. And for a lot of people, this damage is done really early in life. So brain injuries are particularly common among boys and young men, and often they're from poorer backgrounds and their brains are still maturing. And when they sustain a brain injury, normally the impact happens at the front of the head. So the front of the brain is where the temporal and frontal lobes are located. It's where higher emotions take place. It's where long-term memory formation takes place. It's where decision-making happens. And all of these are the areas that we see affected. So you see people become more forgetful, find it harder to concentrate. They can find it harder to manage their emotions or to empathise with other people. They may act out more or their personality might change. And all of this happens without them even realising and the other problem with brain injury is that the longer someone is unconscious and the more injuries they sustain, the more severe the, the effects can be. So we see those kinds of effects in those who have sustained traumatic brain injuries and then some subset of those then are the ones that we're talking about going on to have criminal behaviours. Yeah, so I want to say that most people who have a brain injury do not go on to commit a crime. I think that's really important to say. But in a small minority of people a brain injury can make them more violent. So Sina Fazel, who's a British psychiatrist, has done some studies on this. And he's um, cross-referenced Swedish healthcare records with criminal records. And he found that people who'd been hospitalised for a brain injury were more than three times more likely to commit a violent crime than those who hadn't been. He also found that they were twice as likely to do so as their own siblings. So again, this does not mean that everyone becomes more violent, but some people do. Now, one reason for this could be because of damage sustained to the prefrontal cortex. That's also in the frontal lobes. Studies have shown 
that this damage can lead to increased aggression. So this could be a reason why some people commit more crimes. So the medical end of this seems clear-cut. You say that, that studies repeatedly show these patterns. I mean, how much are those patterns recognized within the criminal justice system? So for a long time, this issue was not recognized at all. Now, this is beginning to change. So campaigners have been trying to raise awareness of brain injuries in the criminal justice system for a long time. And now some rich governments are beginning to take notice. So in Britain, um, they are currently doing a review into neurodisabilities in the criminal justice system, which includes brain injury. In Australia, the Royal Disability Commission has just done a lengthy inquiry into this as well. And in New Zealand, which is actually a pioneer in this field, for a long time they've been trying to reform courts to make them work better for people with brain injuries. So this can be as simple as using simple language to make sure that the defendant understands what is going on in the court. It can also involve giving people handouts so that they can read rather than hear what is going on. And all of these little simple things can make the whole process of being in the criminal justice system a lot easier for people with brain injuries. But as you say, there's, there's something of a time lag here. This happens to a lot of people when they are young and, and are later caught up in the criminal justice system. Is, are, are there efforts to, to sort of intervene in between? Yeah, so a lot of these campaigners have said the most important thing that could be done is to prevent these injuries happening in the first place. So getting people to wear helmets, raising awareness about the dangers of drink driving, all of that would be really, really helpful. Another thing that could be done is to screen for brain injuries earlier, so preferably in schools. This would help people to get the support they need at an earlier age. And what about on the the other side of of the equation, if you like, within the prison system itself? Are efforts being made there? In terms of treatment for brain injury, there's a few things that can be done. So one way is to try and medicate people who want to be medicated. So that could involve offering them antidepressants to help them manage anxiety. It can involve stimulants to help them focus a bit better. But the best way to treat brain injuries is through something called neurorehabilitation. So that involves physical and speech therapy to help people regain lost functions. It also involves more therapeutic methods to help support them as they come to terms with having a brain injury. But most people in prison do not receive the help they need. And that's, to be honest, because helping people in prison is not a great vote winner. But it really makes sense to be helping these people, not least because they're human beings, but also because it makes sense to prevent and reduce crime and to save money. A 2016 report estimated that in Britain, the cost of a traumatic brain injury in a 15-year-old who goes on to offend is around about £345,000 around half a million dollars. So the cost to those affected and society more widely is far higher. Georgia, thank you very much for your time. Thanks a lot, Jason. Clubhouse is a buzzy social media app that launched last year, perfectly timed for the pandemic era. It's an audio-only service in which users drop in and out of various rooms for voice chats. The app has been the darling of Silicon Valley for some time now, but recently it's taken off far from California. The Arab world has very quickly fallen in love with Clubhouse. Greg Karlstrom is a Middle East correspondent for The Economist. 
It's given people a way to talk about taboo topics, things that you can't normally talk about because you're worried about censorship. But governments in the region are belatedly starting to take notice. When you say taboo, I mean, what kind of topics are popping up on Clubhouse? It covers everything from politics to religion, economics, sex, all of these serious things that people are interested in but don't often feel they can discuss. In Lebanon, for example, you have rooms where, of course, the country is going through a prolonged economic and political crisis right now. You have rooms where people discuss ways to stabilize the Lebanese currency, which has lost 90% of its value, or ways to limit the role of religion in politics, which is always a very fraught subject in Lebanon. But Lebanon, of course, comparatively, one of the more open countries in the region. And so it's even more striking when you look somewhere like the Gulf, where in Kuwait, for example, women are having conversations about sexual harassment, which is a widespread and largely unpunished problem in Kuwaiti society. You have people in other Gulf countries who are even discussing things like transgender rights, which are uh, taboo topics, to say the least, in broader society. But part of what's driven the buzz around Clubhouse is that it's, it's kind of exclusive. It's invite only. It is, and we shouldn't say that it's somehow a representative sample of people in the Middle East, because it isn't. Uh, it is, like you said, invitation only. These have become rather sought-after invitations in the region, to the point where you have some people in Saudi Arabia who are offering on social media to sell their invitations for up to 200 real, which is about $50. And it also only works on iPhone. There's no Android version. Of course, Android is the predominant operating system, not just in the region, but around the world. So that rules out about 75% of potential users, and especially people who can't afford iPhones, which are pricey devices, they can't use the app for now. Why do you think Clubhouse has attracted these relatively racy discussions? This is a region, of course, where there is widespread censorship, where traditional media is either state-controlled or heavily state-regulated. And so every time there's a new social media platform that pops up, for a moment, it feels like a breath of fresh air. Twitter and Facebook played that role a decade ago, but governments eventually figured out how to police them and how to weaponize them as a way to spread their message. And so it's gotten to a point 10 years later where when there are protests in Egypt, for example, the police will have these flying checkpoints where they will stop people walking by and demand to see their Facebook feeds so they can look for anti-government content. Even something like TikTok, which seems like a fairly harmless place to post goofy videos. There was a case last year in Egypt where two young women were arrested for debauchery because they were dancing in a video and they were sentenced to jail time, although the sentence was later overturned. So Clubhouse, to some extent, it's just the new kid on the block and governments haven't yet caught on to it. But because these conversations happen live, they're not recorded, they're not archived, there's a feeling that these are harder conversations for a government to monitor. And so people feel that it's a safer space to have these sorts of conversations. So do you think, given the history with Facebook and Twitter and the like, that it's just a matter of time then before governments do cotton on to this and crack down? It probably is. It's already been banned in Oman. They were the first Arab country to ban it. And you've had this predictable campaign starting on state-controlled media where various people are warning about the ills and the dangers of Clubhouse. There's an Egyptian talk show host named Ahmed Musa, who's an almost cartoonishly pro-regime figure, who told his viewers that he logged onto the app and he found a terrorist group that was plotting on it. There's a Saudi commentator who called it a danger to state security and released a long video explaining all of the reasons why this is dangerous. So yeah, there's very much a belief that governments, if they can't find a way to appropriate this and use it for their own ends, they're just going to ban it outright. And so from time to time, when you're on a room listening to people chat on Clubhouse, they'll joke that they might be able to carry on these conversations in person one day because they might all wind up in prison together. 
Thanks very much for your time, Greg. Thank you. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, leave us a rating and a review, and we'll see you back here tomorrow. World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream. But what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.